0: on you we can cry out to you and you are there Lord. it's an amazing thing to know that with the uncertainty around us and where at times the world seems like it's falling apart or our lives are going in a million different directions we know that you never change that your love for us never changes there's nothing that we can do to make your love for us any less there's nothing that we can do to make your love for us any greater it's a perfect love. And you understand us even better than we understand ourselves, Lord, and we thank you for that. Lord, bless our time now as we turn to your word and, and study what it has for us. Lord, I pray that uh, our hearts would be open open to application you would have for us. Bless our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was great. All right. Well, if you would take out your Bibles with me and open them up to Genesis chapter 9. been a couple of weeks since we've been in Genesis. I, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, know that I was at a, a teaching conference in Albuquerque and Don filled in for me, did a great job. Thank you, sir. And uh, last week we celebrated Thanksgiving, but tonight we're back in Genesis chapter 9. while you're turning there, guys... This Saturday is our next men's breakfast, Fuel. It's at 8 o'clock, so if you have not signed up, please stop by at the men's table after our time is done here studying. Sign up for that. We'd love to have you join us. We just need to know how much food to prepare. So, guys, sign up for that. All right, Genesis chapter 9. We're going to pick up at verse 18 where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you'll remember, we've been studying the... The story of the flood and now the families and all of the animals that were saved from the worldwide catastrophic flood that wiped out all other life on the planet, they come out of the ark. And we saw last time as we finished up God's promise that he would never again destroy the the world with a flood and he used the rainbow as that promise. And now we pick up here and we're going to finish up chapter 9. It says... Verse 18 now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth and Ham was the father of Canaan These were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was populated Now I would love to tell you that we're going to immediately after that we jump right into chapter 10 Where it starts going into explaining how the whole earth is populated through these three sons however We see a very sad event to finish the story of Noah at the end of Genesis chapter 9. It says in verse 20, Then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father." And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Well, tradition tells us that when they got off of the ark, they settled on the northern slopes of Mount Ararat initially. And from there, they kind of moved out just a little bit. There's quite a bit of time that takes place between when they got off the ark and when this story happens because Canaan, the youngest son of Ham, is grown up enough to at least be a part of this and see what's going on. So there's very good evidence to see that the families now started moving out from there. Noah probably had his tent with his wife, and they were there, but the families started moving out a little bit from there, but still were in obvious close enough proximity to stop in and pay a visit from time to time. It tells us that Noah planted a vineyard, that he started farming the land, and from that he made some grape juice that fermented into wine. It's the first time that wine is mentioned in the Bible. We don't know if this was an intentional act on Noah's part. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't say that he set out to get drunk. It doesn't say that this was a a moral lapse, if you would. He probably knew of the possibility. Some people theorize that before the flood, because of the atmospheric setup of everything like that, that fermentation was impossible, but that's a big stretch, More than likely, Noah knew the possibility of getting drunk. He probably saw, while they were building the ark, many of his neighbors and everything. That was probably part of what they did, as part of their their debauchery that they lived in. But undoubtedly, it says here that he got drunk. And it's easy to let our guard down. We see here that Noah just came through this incredible thing. He's now getting life going again, and he's planting a vineyard, and undoubtedly successful in what he's doing and, and everything. And he lets his guard down. He, he starts to maybe take it easy, feel safe a little bit. I mean, he's probably thinking, what could possibly happen here? What could possibly happen now? My sons are moved away and, and everything. But the enemy loves to hit us when we're at our weakest. The enemy loves to attack us when we think that we're in good shape. He likes to make us feel comfortable and then get to us. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to always be on our guard. This verse in in Peter tells us to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. That's a continuous action. We can never even open the door just a little bit to temptation and sin. It tells us, though, in verse 21 that he drank and he became drunk and he basically stripped naked and passed out in his tent. Undoubtedly, he wasn't expecting company. Now, the Bible is very clear about drinking to excess, drinking to get drunk, drinking really at all. It talks about Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 through 33 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. It's a deception of the world. It's a deception of the enemy that it's, that it's okay. As long as, especially, you know what, if you're not driving, it's okay. That's what the commercials will tell you. Go out and have a great time as long as you have a designated driver. There's no problem as long as you take those types of precautions, but the Bible speaks very much against it. Ephesians 5.18 tells us, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It contrasts the work of the, the Spirit with the effects of drunkenness. Alcohol is a depressant. Regardless, again, of what television commercials try to tell us. This is how you have that happiness. This is how you have fun. This is how you enjoy yourself. Alcohol depresses self-control, wisdom, balance, and judgment. But the filling of the Holy Spirit has the exact opposite effect. The Holy Spirit is a stimulant. The Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Holy Spirit influences every aspect of our being to be better, to have the joy that the world promises but can't deliver. Now, it wasn't just the fact that Noah got drunk that makes this story so sad. We see in verse 22 that his youngest son, Ham, saw his nakedness. Now, that word saw implies that he looked upon it with satisfaction, that he saw it and it made him happy. He saw it and it gave him some kind of internal joy with that. Now, it doesn't tell us any more details with that, but I have to surmise that perhaps after all of these years of following his father and seeing his father's righteousness and the fact that he always seemed to do the right thing and follow God the right way. And maybe he had some times where he was corrected by his father and, and pointed out some different things. And this built some internal resentment with him. Maybe there was you know, this rebellious attitude that a lot of children have. I know I went through that stage in my life of rebellion. Some people look at godly men and they emulate them. They want to they be like them. But far too often, people look at people that are following God and living the right way. And instead of saying, I want to be like that, they say, you know what? I'd love to see them stumble and fall. And we see that happen so many times when godly men do fall. And the world seems to take pleasure in seeing that. It makes front page headline news when a godly man falls and stumbles. Now, it tells us that Ham went outside and told his two brothers. Now, we don't know if his two brothers, they all came to visit, or if he went running to go get them and bring them to see it. But it says, it literally means he told them with delight. He saw it. He found some type of pleasure in that. And then he ran to tell his brothers, saying, man, you're not going to believe this. Dad's passed out drunk in the tent. you got to come see this. Spreading gossip. Again, trying to make himself feel better and feel all of them. Yeah, Dad, you know, Dad, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, you got to come and see this. But we see in verse 23 that his two brothers didn't join him. His two brothers didn't join in the activity. But notice it also doesn't tell us that they rebuked him to his face. Instead, their actions spoke louder than their words. It tells us that the two brothers then got to the front of the tent and they put, a, they put their hands on each other's shoulders like this and draped a cloth over it or a blanket over it and walked backwards into the tent, not looking at their father, and covered him up with the blanket. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of of sins. That word fervent means passionate. Make it your life's ambition to love people as, as much as God you know, pours into you. Love with that kind of love. And when we do that, it says it covers a multitude of sins. And here we see the exact contrast between the two. Ham and his two brothers. See jealousy, envy, bitterness, personal guilt will make you want to uncover the sins of others. Because when their sins are uncovered, it somehow makes us feel okay about our sins. But real love, true love, that fervent, passionate love for one another covers a multitude of sins. And we all need to check our hearts on that. If we find some type of, even if it's a small little pleasure in someone else stumbling and falling, that's a heart issue that we need to deal with. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from from it flow the springs of life. Above all, guard your hearts, it says. That should be our our top priority. Examine our hearts. And oftentimes we have to say, God, you examine my heart because I can cloud it over. I can cover it up. I can justify my actions far too often. But God, you examine my heart. You show me. You show me. Well, verse 24 tells us that Noah woke up. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, Noah obviously was brokenhearted over this. He probably saw this rebellious attitude in his son before, but never acted out to this extent, and he pronounces a prophetic curse on him through his son, Canaan who was also there. It doesn't say that Canaan did anything wrong other than being with his father. And we know that the Bible is very clear that the son doesn't pay for the sins of the father. But the fact of the matter is, those tendencies can be passed on. And so Noah talks through this. He, passes, he says, cursed be Canaan. We don't know. There's a lot of different thoughts about how these, this curse and these different prophecies play out. Because it, it plays out obviously through all of the generations that follow. But the one that I want to focus on is listed to us in, in verse 26. When speaking of Shem, his other, one of his sons. It says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. You see, Shem knew God personally. It wasn't, he wasn't following this God of his father. It was a personal relationship with him and Shem. It wasn't based on his dad's relationship with God. And we're going to see that the godly line, the Messiah, comes through the line of Shem. All people, all nations come from Noah. We we understand now that we all came from Adam, obviously, but we all come from Noah as well here, since this is the only family, these are the only people alive. So we are all descendants of Noah, and all descendants then through one of his three sons. All people, all nations. And you know something interesting that as I was studying through this today, the Bible does not ever acknowledge the concept of race. The only race that's ever mentioned in the Bible is the human race. It doesn't doesn't talk about different races. It talks about different nations, different peoples. The concept of race is an evolutionary thing. The the survival of the fittest, and the fittest get to be the superior race, and then there's the lower races below it. That's an evolutionary concept. That's not a biblical concept. And from that, obviously, comes racism. We see people feeling superior because they're of a certain race. And again, that's not a biblical concept. Well, it goes on, verse 28 Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The third longest lifespan of anyone recorded, 950 years. So we see the end of Noah's life, a godly man, a great heritage. And now we move on into chapter 10, that is often referred to as the table of nations. Again, because Noah's three sons, from them came all of the peoples, all of the nations. And before we just move forward with this as a biblical account, listen to what Dr. William F. Albright said. He, is, he was the leading, world's leading authority on archaeology of the Near East, and by the way, not a believer. Not a believer in the authenticity of Scripture. He says this, it stands, speaking of of Genesis chapter 10, it stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to distributions of people in, in a genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. Every piece of archaeology that is uncovered only proves the authenticity of, of chapter 10 of Genesis. There's never been anything uncovered that disproves it. And here's a man who is the leading authority in archaeology in that region. And he said there is nothing like it Comparing when, when we continue to find things to back it up. It's his source that he goes to. So we see now chapter 10 starting in verse 1. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And the sons were, bo- were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. Forgive my pronunciations. I'm sure many of them are wrong. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, most people I understand are mildly interested in the table of nations and where all the nations come from. A few of you might be fascinated by that. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time pleasing the few of you. We're going to touch on a couple of things for those of you who are mildly interested in it. I do recommend if you do want further study in this, there's a great book. It's called The Genesis Record. It's by Henry Morris. It's about that thick, but about 30 pages of it are devoted to just this, breaking down the table of nations. So I'll let you do your reading on your own. But we're going to hit a couple of things. First of all, Japheth, the first son mentioned, his family moved north. They became the Europeans. Gomer, one of his sons, settled in the area of Germany. His sons, Ashkenaz, Rifa, and Togarma, Eastern Germany, Scandinavia, Turkey, those areas. Magog, one of Japheth's other sons, settled in, anybody? Russia, Russia. And why do we know that? Well, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the, for- the forthcoming prophecy that is still to come, talks of Magog coming down and attacking Israel and God supernaturally protecting Israel. That is still to come on the prophetic calendar. And don't we see that setting up today? Russia allying itself with Israel's enemies, providing weapons for them. I mean, we can see it unfolding right now. Imagine a hundred years ago, when, when Israel didn't exist as a nation, people would read this and go, "Huh, what is that?" That doesn't even make sense. But now we're living in a time where we can see this unfolding before our very eyes. Madai, another son, the Medes and the Persians. that's present-day Iran. Javan, that's Greece. His son settled into uh, Hella, Cyprus. Tarshish, one of his sons, that name ring a bell to anyone? It's a whale of a story. (laughs) Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. Instead, he fled to Tarshish. Tubal and Meshach, again Russia. Meshach is the ancient name for Moscow. Tyrus, the other son, settling on the Aegean coast. Now, verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, and Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Sheba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah were Sheba, and Dedan. Ham, the other son, his families traveled south, settling into Egypt, and Africa, and some in the Middle East. Cush, also known as Ethiopia, his one son. Now, verse 8 tells us a little bit more about Cush and one of his sons. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth, Ire and Kela and reason between Nineveh and Kela, That is the great city. Now, Nin- Nimrod is going to come into play in chapter 11. Nimrod, the, his name means rebel, or to rebel. And it's interesting that he's coming out of Ham's line to rebel, perhaps rebelling against the curse. Remember, the curse told us that Ham's generations would be servants to the others, and here we see that he didn't. He he's basically saying, "No way, man! I'm not going to serve my brothers. I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to be influential." The it's called the Jerusalem Targum, which is basically like our paraphrase Bibles, a commentary, Jewish uh, philosophers, and and. Uh, uh, commentators, if you would, wrote these things like our commentaries, and it's called the Jerusalem Targum, and this is what it says about this verse, talking about uh, Nimrod. It says, He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore, it is said, as Nimrod the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord." We get a little more insight. It wasn't just talking about that he was, he was a great hunter, killed a lot of wild animals, and that impressed God. That's not what it's saying. He was a hunter of men, luring them away from God into following him. And we're going to see that as we get into chapter 11, because one of the cities that he built was Babel. Three other cities also in the region of Shinar. That's Babylonia, that area in there. Then into Assyria, it says, and he built four more cities there, one of them being Nineveh. Notice that he founded the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, who will later on in history play a very big blow against the, the nation of Israel. The Assyrian nation will come and capture the ten tribes of northern Israel in 722 B.C., And the Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Now verse 13 goes on. It says, Mizraim became the father of Ludim and a couple other guys. (laughs) One of them it lists is Kaz from which came the Philistines. Again, a little maybe editorial note by Moses here. Plugging it in here. This is where the Philistines came from. Mizraim, that son, settled in Egypt. And put in Libya. That's where the nation spread out from then. Now it says, verse 15, Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn. And Heth, which be- the, many believe the Hittites came from Heth. And the Jebusites, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zamorite and the Hamathite, and all the other ites, and afterward, the families of the Canaanites were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zebeloim and as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Again, we know now Canaan, this son settled into the area that would be the promised land for the Jews. And they became an extremely wicked people. But God gave them a tremendous amount of time to turn from their ways. We have a loving and gracious God, a long-suffering God. And he gave them 400 years to turn from their evil, wicked ways before the Israelites moved in. We get a lot of information about the different ites because they're the ones that the Israelites will continually battle. The Hittites, there's some evidence, again, I won't go into all of it, it it was a good read today, but the evidence that links them to the Mongolian people. Sinites, Sino refers to China. So here we see the Chinese, Japanese, other Asian nations where they have their history. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the older brother of Japheth, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. So Shem, again, we come back now to the, the godly line, the one that God chooses to bring his people, Israel, out of. And it says, the children of Eber. Most commentators believe that that is the forerunner to the, where we get the term or where we see the term Hebrews. The children of Eber. And it's interesting that Eber means crossing over or the region beyond. Kind of interesting when you think about it. Continuing on, table of nations, the sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hull and Gether and Mash. Arphaxad became the father of Shelah and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Here we get to an interesting little, again, insertion into the table of nations when we get to the name of Peleg. It says, Peleg, for for in his days the earth was divided. Peleg actually means division. And there are two schools of thought with this. One, people, be- people believe that this is when the Tower of Babel takes place, when the peoples are divided. Other people, commentators, believe that this, because it's a different word than the division that's used of people dividing, that this is actually when the continental shift took place and the, the worlds were separated. I tend to believe, again, after reading and studying through this and just thinking through it logically myself, that it's the former. That it's when, with regards to the people from the Tower of Babel, when they were dispersed, when they were separated, when they were divided, a lot of people again try to come up with different ways to explain how things happen. Because the question invariably comes: Okay, you got all of the animals and you got all of the people that are alive on the planet at Mount Ararat. How do we get kangaroos and people in Australia? How do we get pe- people and animals dispersed throughout the world without them all being together at one time and then all the places shift? Well, there is a very logical explanation for it. The ice ages, and it's proven, didn't happen gradually. There's vast amounts of evidence that it was a catastrophic event when they took place. There's woolly mammoths that have been uncovered, entombed in ice with fresh flowers in their mouths still. So it happened very quickly. And an interesting fact, I, it, again, this fascinates me, the glaciers, and again, I don't know how they prove this or how they come across it, but people much smarter than me have put all of this stuff together. But the glaciers during these ice ages that were sucked into the North Pole and the South Pole, 14 million cubic miles of water were sucked into the glaciers out of the oceans. 14 million cubic miles of water sucked into the glaciers. Well, if it's sucked out of the oceans into the glaciers, we have all of these land masses, land bridges between all of the continents that could have easily carried everyone around. They could have walked right over there, no problem. Then all the, the other one to me that just makes the most sense is, for crying out loud, their great-grandpa built an ark. They know how to build big ships to carry stuff across the water. So, I don't know. That, that, to me, again, those types of answers to me make a whole lot more sense, again, than the evolutionists who are going to try to tell us how things evolved and how things moved on. It's crazy enough for me to think that they could believe that out of the slime in the coast of California, all of us came from. But then imagine it's got to happen again on the island of Australia for all of the stuff over there to happen. Makes a whole lot more sense to me this way. Well, anyway, regardless, we don't know for sure, but we know that Peleg's name means division. Verse 26 Joktan became the father of Almadad and a whole bunch of other people. And we get down verse 29, it says the name Jobab. Some people believe that that is Job. Again, no. Real proof of that, but just an interesting thought. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlements accepted, extended from Mesha as you go to Sephar and the hill country of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. Now we're going to get more on Shem's line in a little bit into into uh, chapter eleven says, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So, Table of Nations. I encourage you, there. you just Google Table of Nations. Google Genesis chapter 10, and you'll have all the reading material you want, and like I said, if you want a great book, uh, pick up the Genesis record by Henry Morris. We do have it available. I did check. We don't have any right now, but we can order it in the book ministry, so... Let Holly know and she'll get you one. All right, chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Does that raise a flag with anyone else? I know it does, my dad, because he asked me on Thursday, and I've, I got an answer. Does that raise a flag with anyone else? We just heard three times in chapter 10, verse 5, chapter 10, verse 20, and chapter 10, verse 31, that they were separated according to their languages. And here we have 11.1 that says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Is there a contradiction there? Nope. Chapter 10 was written later as a fill-in. We already talked about the fact that Nimrod's thrown right into the middle there. He's in chapter 11. So we see that this is just the table of nations written out to kind of give the historical thing. This is how the nations got all separated and spread out. But here we're going to go back. Into verse eleven, and or chapter eleven, and we're going to see the story of how the nations got pushed out, if you would, from where they all were, because they were all settled in the same place; they were all hanging out together. Now, another thing that just intrigues me is it says the whole earth used the same language, language, language. Do you underst- understand this? This is one of the biggest hurdles that evolutionists can't get over. There is no there is nothing between the bridge to bridge the gap between the nonsensical noise that animals make and the language that we have. Animals can communicate with each other to, you know, basically like ducks that, you know, you have the feed call where they, they know there's food. But there's they're not it's not language. It's noise that 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 they they make with each other. Modern linguists know that man didn't invent language by putting sounds together. There's a lot of again very technical things, but to me, I'm a real simple guy. If we generated our languages by sounds, one language would have included the word, <laughs> because we can all do that. It's a noise. But it, it doesn't, it does, it's it's not just putting sounds together. Language is so complex. Language is, is a system. It's not small parts put together. Animals respond to words, not language. Like anything else, God created language. And we're going to see here in a moment that not only did He create it, but He can change it. But language is a gift. Do you realize how blessed we are to have language, not just so that we can communicate with each other, but so that God can communicate with us? It blows me away when I when I think about the the magnitude of that incredible gift, because I, I go back to little simple things. I'm a simple guy. I love my dog. Gizmo's a great dog. Love him to death. And when I say, go outside, Gizmo, he knows what that means after years of saying go outside and going to the door and opening it, he knows what that means. But that we're not communicating. We're not having a language exchange. He just knows what that noise means. God gave us language so that he could communicate with us. In great detail. Jesus, the living word, communicating with us. If you're here with us on the weekends, we've been going through Hebrews, and it tells us in verse 2 that in these times, God communicates with us through his Son. What an incredible gift that is. But we see, as we continue in verse 11, what happens when men use that gift for evil instead of good. It says in verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and use the brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Nimrod, as we talked about in chapter 10, is the leader of this group of people that is doing this. And if you look at what it says here in verse 4, it says, They said, come let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. The reason they're doing this is so that they wouldn't be scattered over the face of the earth. That is in direct disobedience to what God told them to do. In Genesis 9 verse 1 and 9 verse 7, God repeated the command to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. And this is in direct disobedience to God's command. And again, reading this, it's it's fascinating to, to think through this. Again, this isn't specifically laid out for us, but what they used there, this tar, was a sealant, the same word used to seal the ark, to keep the water out. So was their intention, again, disregarding what God said, sealing this tower as they built it so that if there was another flood, they had a place to go, disregarding the fact that God said it'll never happen again? Direct defiance to God. And look, look again at the, the arrogance in it. Come let us build for ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. There was one world language, one technology, one government, one religion now led by this man named Nimrod. Goes on, verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Notice again, there he says, let us go down, referring to a triune God. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So we see God looking down on this. They're building this city. They're uniting. They're coming together in this common goal to reach up to heaven, to make a name for themselves, to separate them from God's commands. And God says, I got to stop this. Is it because he's some egomaniac? No. (laughs) It's because he's merciful and loving. What starts out sounding like a great idea to all of these people, not knowing Nimrod's intention, I'm sure, unite together a common good, convince the masses that this is a good cause and everybody gets behind it, but God knows our hearts. And he says nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Again, we see this played out throughout history over and over again. Started out somebody raising up and sounding like a good idea, getting everybody convinced that this is a good idea and coming along with it in the horrific things that follow. Time and time again, it could give illustration after illustration after illustration. You don't have to go any further than, than Adolf Hitler in, Ger- in Germany. This type of thing leads only to devastation and destruction and, and damnation going to, on a fast track to hell, and God says, we can't let this happen. We need to go down and confuse their language and, and get them spread out, doing what we told them to do on their own, and they didn't do. They disregarded it. God confused the language and scattered them over the face of the earth. This was a necessary curse in Genesis 11. But I love the parallel with this. Turn with me real quickly to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 2, we see God seeing all of these people coming together and doing this thing and the the, the horrible results that could come, and he scatters them by confusing their language. But look what happens in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with, one, with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together And were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are you not all who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear in our own language to which we were born? Paratheans, Medes, Eliamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Men from every nation. It goes on to list many more. They, they heard in their own tongue the gospel message. I love that. When things are, are going evil and, going, and heading down the tubes, God confused their language and spread it out. But when it came time to get the gospel message out, he used language again, speaking in their own language. Amazing, amazing communication is hard. It is. Can I get an amen, husbands and wives? Communication's hard. It's, it's, it's difficult to understand each other. And and then when we get our own attitudes in the way, it can become even, even harder. Even when we're speaking the same language. I heard a, a story of a a couple that was uh, really upset with each other and they they neither one of them was going to talk to the other one they were just giving each other the silent treatment well they got into bed that evening and the husband needed to get up at five o'clock or he was going to miss his flight but the alarm clock's on his wife's side of the bed but he's not going to talk to her so he writes her a note i need to get up at five o'clock please set the alarm and wake me up then Hands her the note. She looks at it, puts it on the nightstand. They go to bed. He wakes up the next morning, 8 o'clock. And now he breaks his vow of silence because he's beside himself. He said, I told you to wake me up at 5 o'clock. It's 8 o'clock. You didn't wake me up. And she points over at the nightstand and it opens up the note. that it says, it's 5 o'clock. Get up. <laughs> Communication is difficult, but unity, true unity, is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled again with the Holy Spirit. God gives simple and easy to understand instructions. He doesn't code it all. He doesn't make it difficult and complicated. He gives it to us easy to understand. And he has a will, a perfect will, that will happen. We can either go along with it the easy way or the hard way. God has a way of getting us to do his will, amen? We can go along the easy way or the hard way. Here we see an example that they they weren't doing it the way that he said, just go out and fill the earth. He had to do it his way. We see it again, too. We continue in the book of Acts, if, if you read through that. Jesus said, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Yet they stayed in Jerusalem. And it took the persecution of the church, the martyring of, of Stephen and others to get them spread out and going. We can do it the easy way or the hard way. Well, verse 10 through 23 gives us the lineage of, from Shem all the way through to a man named Nahor. For the sake of time, I will and the fact that I would butcher most of the names anyway. Go ahead and read that on your own, but it's just a lineage through. tells us you know, who, who begat who and how long they lived and so forth. But we get down to verse 24. It says, Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah. And he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. The first 11 chapters of Genesis break out into four major events that we've covered so far. Creation, the fall, the flood and then the table of nations that we just went through. Now, from where we pick up right here, all the way through the end of Genesis, we're going to look at four major people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And here we're introduced to the first one. He's called Abram here. God will change his name later on. Genesis covers 2,000 years and 20 generations, but a third of the book is dedicated to this man, Abram. We're told that he's a friend of God, that he's the father of faith. One of the most influential men in history. Abram means exalted father. That's what his name means. Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now Abram's wife were introduced here, named Sarai. We're going to find out later on that she was an extremely beautiful woman. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Sarai was barren; she had no children. Now Sarai, that name means contentious. So she was beautiful, but she was barren. And bickering. Bummer. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Abram, again, though, means father. And I have to imagine that that may have played a part of the contentiousness and the the difficulty. Because his name means father, yet his wife is barren. But we're going to see an incredible miracle as we look through the life of Abram, Abraham. Verse 31, Terah took Abram his son and Lot, his, Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. First reading of this, we see that Abram with his dad and a whole bunch of the rest of the family left their homeland and started going towards Canaan, the eventual promised land. But we find out a little interesting information, and obviously we're going to dig into this a whole lot more starting next week, but it tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 2 through 4, Stephen, again giving the account now, he said, And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him into his country, which you are now living. We see in Acts chapter 7 a little information that we don't have here. God spoke to Abram and said, leave your family and go to the land that I will show you. But Abram wasn't completely obedient. He went and told his dad, said, let's get everybody together and let's go down. And then they didn't go all the way, although we don't know that God told them specifically, he said, the land that I'll show you, but they stop in Haran. Understand that partial obedience is disobedience. And though Abram, we find out Abraham, the father of faith, we see a little bit of maybe lack of faith here starting right off the bat. God says, you go, leave your family. And he says, man, I can't leave everybody. I, I, I got to take dad with me. I got to, you know, my security, this is what I'm using. I can't leave everything. And he takes his family with him. It's interesting that his father's name, Terah, means Delay. And Haran, where they stopped, means parched or barren. Interesting how these things come together. So again, as we close this up, are you feeling parched? Barren? Like you're not hearing anymore from God? You you got an initial thought, thought or direction from the Lord and you haven't been hearing and you've been praying and you feel like you're in this dry land? Go back to where God specifically told you to do something and make sure you're in complete obedience he will continue to guide you and direct you along the way but he does require obedience from us we can't expect to hear more from him if we're not doing what he has already told us to do well we're going to pick up next week and start looking at this the life of this man abram uh, we have time we do there was another if you were with us a Few weeks ago, when we were doing the, the flood story, there was a short little video that I showed that I thought was great. Well, we have another one from the covering a little bit of what we talked about tonight. So hopefully, leave this impression with you as we leave. We got it ready to go. All right, check the monitors.
1: I can't read that fast. Well, check this out. First off, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they mean supposed races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. But are there really different races? Take a gander at Acts 17.26 where it is written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 1, 26 through 28, easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then their children had children, and those children had children, and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6:9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark, and according to Genesis 9.19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11, and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who were descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This of course is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which depending on different variables produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So, let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together, they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, and thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. Here's the bigger point, though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which by the way, represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. So, since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who boarded the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population, thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shade becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simplified for sure, but enough said.
0: Got it? All right, let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your amazing word, and we thank you for the gift that you've given to us in language that you can speak to us through your word. And Lord, we we also thank you for that intimate language that you speak to each one of us in our hearts. Lord, I pray that uh, uh, each one of us would spend some time listening to you this week. Lord, continue to grow us, continue to shape us and mold us more and more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the week.